everybody. Welcome to the Crohn's Fitness Food Podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Gish, Crohn's warrior and IJ nephropathy warrior, and I'm dedicated to sharing the stories of those with IBD. Thank you so much for joining me today. Now let's get to it. Well, hi, everyone. My guest today is Amber Tresca, health content creator, writer, speaker, advocate, and host of the About IBD podcast, She was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis at the age of 16, had a colectomy at age 26, and started writing about IBD and other health conditions one year later. She's been writing ever since, sharing both about her own journey and writing for a variety of health publications, giving insight and technical information about IBD. And she's here today to share her story. Thank you so much for joining me today, Amber, and welcome to the show. Stephanie, thank you so much for the invitation. It has been too long. We should have connected before this. I put that totally squarely on myself, but we're here now, so I'm really uh, grateful that you asked me to come on. Well, and I'm excited, and I feel the same way. I've been watching you almost from the beginning. When I started my show, it was hard to find any podcasts about IBD, and I actually didn't stumble across yours until shortly after I started mine, and I thought, Mm -hmm. oh, how amazing. We've got I know there's mine and hers out there, so <laughs> hopefully right. we've got a few it's, more. <laughs> we definitely do. I think there's really a discovery problem. Like we have, like there's great content, there's great shows, there's great people making those shows. The problem is being able to find them. So I know that that's my biggest issue. <laughs> I agree. Maybe not for everybody, but when people find my show and they get so excited and I'm like, well, Good news. I have good news for you. There's a hundred more episodes that you haven't heard yet. So, <laughs> Exactly. Well, we're going to get into that in just a little bit. But first, let's go ahead and let's jump in. And you, can you start us off by sharing your IBD story? Talk about how and when you were first diagnosed. Yeah, I'm going to give the Cliff's notes because I am 50 and I was diagnosed when I was 16. So it is, you know, it's like, let too much. Let me sum up. Uh, So when I was diagnosed, it was 1989. Paint the picture for you. It's 1989. There was no social media. Our parents never knew where we were. Um, So it started out pretty much similarly that you're going to hear from most people that have ulcerative colitis. All of a sudden, one day you had a bloody stool and said, what is this? And hoped it would go away. It did not. And then I started losing weight hand over fist. At the time, I was living outside of Detroit. So I grew up in the suburbs uh, in and around Detroit, which is not an uncommon place for a person to develop an IBD. Yet it took some folks a, a minute to put it together. So the first st- the first stop uh, was the emergency room, as one does. I think if my 16-year-old came to me and had bloody stools and I didn't know anything about IBD, that's probably the first thing I would do as well. And when I got to the emergency room, they really didn't know what to do with me. And so they almost didn't do anything. So what it took was follow up with my pediatrician uh, because I was 16. And she was very smart And she said, okay, I need to refer you to a gastroenterologist. Again, all new. This is nothing that we had ever been through before. I was disgustingly healthy my whole childhood. Like, got that attendance award every year. Thankfully, they don't do that anymore because it's a little bit uh, of an issue. Not everyone can go to school every day. But got that attendance award every year. So healthy. Um, So gastroenterologist really didn't understand what that meant. And at that point, I was fully out of school. It was just too sick, too much going on. I had a urinary tract infection. I was on all kinds of medications. None of them were IBD specific because I hadn't been diagnosed yet. So then they wanted me off everything uh, in preparation for having a colonoscopy. Well, I was losing so much weight and was pretty much just in my bed. So it was my mother who called the gastroenterology office one day and said, I don't know where I'm bringing her today, but I'm bringing her somewhere today because something has to get done. I don't know that she's going to make it to this appointment that you all have scheduled, whatever it was, whether it was days or weeks, probably days. But even so, she was like, "Uh, yeah, we're coming now. 
we're coming today. So, Yay, mom, for fighting for you. It's like it's one of those things. It's and I always say, like for myself, I have two kids, so thirteen and sixteen. Like I won't cross the street for myself, but I will one hundred percent, you know, go totally for broke when it comes to my kids. So anyway. Uh, we get to the hospital, which is where they did the colonoscopies in those days. Mind you, I had no prep. Okay. So did not drink anything, you know, nothing, but that wasn't a problem because he really didn't need to go in very far. First of all, I was having ridiculous diarrhea, like 20 times a day. People with IBD know what I'm talking about. And so there wasn't anything in there anyway. So he was able to get a look. And he came into the recovery area afterward, and he said to me, uh, Amber, do you know what uh, raw hamburger looks like? <laughs> and of course, you know, of course I knew what that looked like. Um, I knew how to cook a few things at age 16. And he said, that right now is what the inside of your colon looks like. So it was that bad, even just, eh, I don't know, a month. If maybe not even two. So a a month-ish. It was that bad. And the colonoscopy was done at the hospital. So I didn't leave. They found me a bed upstairs in pediatrics and I stayed there for 40 days. 40 days? 40 days. Wow. Because in those days, if you remember in the way back when, um, there wasn't much going on. We had prednisone and azulfidine and prednisone and azulfidine. And that's what they, that's what we had. So we basically had to wait for those things to do their job and at least get to the point where I stopped bleeding. Like that was the first thing because I bled so much that I had a blood transfusion. It was at the point where they didn't understand how I was upright. And they actually didn't want me walking around. (laughs) So they actually put one of those little portable commodes next to my bed. Come on now. That like that was not going to happen. Right. So and it didn't. I was like, I will get up and go to the bathroom. And I did and walked the halls, you know, immensely. Now I wander around my neighborhood from uh, hours. But any case, yeah, was there for 40 days, missed a lot of school, all of that. So there's a lot of fallout that goes at being diagnosed at any age. But as a teenager in high school, uh, as you can imagine, affected grades, uh, personal relationships, family dynamics, all of that. All right, we finally get this flare up under control. I leave the hospital looking like, you know, the squirrel cheeks, the moon face was like, I remember like not being able to like look down. <laughs> like your cheeks are so big that you can't like see down. There's nothing, there's nothing but cheek. Um, so anyway, I was hospitalized again like that uh a year later. And thankfully, after that, we kind of got things under control, but never really. I just refused to go back into the hospital. <laughs> so at 17, 18 senior in high school, I said, I'm not going back in there. I know you want me to. It's not happening. So they let me stay out of the hospital just on huge amounts of prednisone to try to keep things under control. Well, on and off for the next 10 years, I was never well. I am five foot one inches tall. Uh, I think maybe then I was maybe a little bit taller. I maybe had an extra inch. I'm five foot two and a half, so I'm <laughs> I'm you right in. What? I'm right nearby you. <laughs> you you seem taller. So let me just say that you seem taller. It's the extra inch and a half. <laughs> it, maybe it is, you know. But uh, anyway, I uh, I was usually like around a hundred pounds, which is not a that's not a really healthy weight to be at. Uh, for a long time. And that came along with all the people that would always say things like, oh, you're so skinny, or I wish I could be that skinny. Meanwhile, you know, all through the remainder of my teens and my early 20s, I was running to the bathroom uh, every time you turned around. How were you coping with that emotionally at such a young age from just trying to understand this completely new disease? You're in the hospital so much. Were you even processing it? No, not, I would say not processing it. Like, you, like it's one of those things that like 
I took it and it was this little like ball of mess and I just like took it out of myself and put it over somewhere else and it sat somewhere else, which is not the way to go. <laughs> like avoidance does not help you. That's not the way to go. I did have a couple of touch points with some social workers while I was hospitalized, but I think they mostly talked to me and then thought that I was okay enough that I didn't really need any other interventions. Uh, and I think that's kind of just how it was thought of um, in those days. And maybe I wasn't even truthful. I don't know. Maybe it was like, I'm fine. I'm fine. You know, I like, I don't remember what I said. It's amazing how we can convince ourselves that if we just kind of dig in and push through it, then we can get through a lot. And it's shocking how much, how many people I've talked to that have done the same thing, that somehow, some way, we just kind of clench our teeth and find a way to push on through the day. I know, which is, it, it's a strength and it's a weakness yes, at the same time. It is. Because I'm telling you, if you need something done, find somebody who has a chronic illness to do it because they will get it done. But it might come at the expense of their emotional and physical health. So that's absolutely uh, what was what was going on. And, you know, nobody paid attention to those. I mean, still today, there's not enough attention paid to mental health. So there wasn't really anything like that happening. And, uh, you know, whenever I would go in to see my doctor, which was a lot, and you'd go in and he'd look at me and he'd say, you know, how you doing? And it would be like, all right, how am I going to answer this question today? Do I take that ball of mess that I put up on a shelf over here and bring it out and open it up and let you see all of it? Or I just say, I'm okay, except I'm going to the bathroom X number of times a day and whatever else is going on. Like what, like, what do I do with that question? To, I, to this day, I don't know. Um, so yeah, I didn't really cope with it. I kind of just went through it. I was very much in this fatalistic attitude. I don't really know why I felt this way. Maybe because there wasn't a lot of medical options. There was only surgery, I was told. And it was true. You know, uh, biologics didn't come around until uh, basically it was too late for me. So it was a struggle for all those years. And when I was 26, I moved. So I left the Detroit area and I moved to Connecticut and I had to establish new care. So that's what I did. And I had another, <laughs> another core memory take place where my new gastroenterologist came in after a colonoscopy, which was my last colonoscopy. And he looked terrified. He was terrified. And so he opens that, you know, that flimsy carton to talk to me. And he said, uh, I, your colon is riddled with polyps. There's so many in there. There's nothing we could do. Um, we just looked at it and got out. And I'm afraid it's going to fall apart. I'm, it's a wonder that you're not already perforated. And I'm going to run some tests because... I don't know if you have cancer. And it was like, okay, that was a lot. <laughs> that was a lot. And what we had to do from there is that the colon had to come out. So that was the that was the path to surgery because my colon was turning cancerous. Today they might have managed it a little bit differently. It's up for debate what to do, but at that time it was like we found some high-grade dysplasia, which is the precursor to cancer. There's too many polyps in here. Now they were probably pseudopolyps, but who knows? You'd have to figure that out. And they were concerned about spontaneous perforation that I would just be walking around one day and get a hole in my colon. So within a couple of months, I'd had a surgical consult and gotten all that straightened around. And before, let's see, March of that year. So it was right around my birthday. I had the first step. I had two steps to create a J pouch. The first step being the colectomy and the placement of a loop ileostomy and the J pouch creation. It's a lot in one step. And then the second step 
was the closure of the ileostomy. And so they just sew it up and tuck it all back in. And then you start using your J pouch, uh, like a hundred times easier than the first surgery. Um, at that time, two steps was pretty common today. They usually use, um, three because people have better outcomes and all right. So wrap it up. So I was great. I was, I was great for a long time. I was great. I had two pregnancies because um, I have two kids, so two live births. And many years later, the symptoms came back again. How long do you think you went without symptoms? Was everything successful after that first surgery? How long do you think you went? Yeah, I mean, so here's the thing that I think about a lot, and I still don't quite know how to parse it out, because what I was dealing with with the ulcerative colitis which by the time I had surgery was pancolitis, so it was everywhere through my colon, was not sustainable. You know, I would come home. There were times when I would come home from work, go right to bed, get up in the morning, go back to work again, you know, and that was like your life. You had, you had no life. So getting the J pouch was 100% giving me a life, you know. Now, if I had been totally feeling healthy, feeling good, and then had the surgery and then went to life with a J pouch. I don't know if I would think of it differently um, as, you know, some people have had to do that their first bout with ulcerative colitis sends them to surgery and they didn't live 10 years with, with all of that disease. So I was so grateful, even though was dealing with, you know, a taco butt because the first, you know, you're going to the bathroom and all... The, there's no place for that bile to get absorbed and dealt with. It's just coming straight out. So, and still today, I, there are times when it's like, oof, you know, I, I need a minute um, to uh, recover from this, from this painful bowel movement. Uh, you do still have to go, like, I don't count anymore, but I'm going to guess around six times a day. I can't eat anything I want. I eat a lot of things more than my doctors want me to because they they're like they would prefer I eat cooked vegetables but I eat a lot of salad uh, I just chew really well don't if your doctor tells you not to eat salad like don't don't be like me um, I'm just ridiculous but um, so I had a lot of years of 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 good you know it it's not like having a healthy colon not that I know what that's like. I don't remember it at all, but you still have to be aware of things. And as time went on and more was understood about J pouches, about how IBD affects the whole person, then I began to understand, oh, wow, I need to be having my skin checked every year. I need to, I mean, I wear glasses to drive anyway. So I was usually in the eye doctor. But I have to be serious about this. I need to be seeing my eye doctor every year and more besides. So I, I'll never forget when symptoms started up again. You start up with all the testing again. Of course, first they think it's a gynecological problem. No, it was not. Um, finally get around to getting someone to look at what's left of my intestines. And, you know, that was that was starting to get jacked up. So my nurse called me, and this is very funny. I love my nurse, but this is a wild thing to say. <laughs> she says, well, you had 17 good years, you know? So yeah, it was it from, you know, the time of surgery until I had to go back on treatment was 17 years, which probably seems like a really, really long time to younger people. To me, it did not seem long enough. Blink of an eye, especially when it's done, when all of a sudden it's the 17 years has gone by. <laughs> 100%, you know? Uh, and then it's like, well, now I have to deal with another aspect of this. And it was kind of a new world also from when I was diagnosed until that point, because so many new types of tests and medications were available to me. And also living in a place where I have access to cutting edge care um, as well. So 
that brings me to today. And I do pretty well. You know, I, I deal with the fatigue and um, the joint pains and that type of thing. But overall, I do pretty well. And I'm not, I'm not a big complainer, as you might guess. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of us are that way. We kind of downplay, kind of like you said earlier in your story, when it's like, how much do I tell? Do I unravel this ball I've put up on the shelf? Or do I just smile and say, I'm okay today? <laughs> and uh, we tend to not complain a lot, I've noticed, as, as a group of chronic illness patients. So yeah. tell me a little more about today. Are you on medications? Is that helping to keep everything to a point where things are manageable and everything is somewhat under control? Yes, I, I am on medications. We have to stop my intestine from closing up on itself. So, um, you know, something has to be done there. And I manage pretty well. I... <laughs> I, I call my last colonoscopy my last colonoscopy because that was when I had a colon, but I still go for regular pouchoscopies and I go for regular MRIs and all of the non-invasive testing that you have to do, which by the way, it's outstanding. I have to take my narrow butt over to the, <laughs> the place to get a blood draw. Um, so, you know, all of that uh, is, is going on. I um I have always paid attention to what I put in and on my body. So that has always been something and for my kids I got real, you know, um very stringent and careful about what's in the house, what we're eating, what skincare products we're using, all of that. Um so, but it did become necessary for me to go on medication simply because, you know, um, the it the pouch is not something that I want to risk in any way, even though I did voluntarily and also at I had to advocate very strongly for having two vaginal births. I still want to do everything I can to make sure that my pouch is healthy. So sometimes when they go in for the pouchoscopy, they'll say, eh, I see a little bit of, you know, a little bit of inflammation and stuff going on. And um, I want to make sure that we're on top of that all of the time, uh, which we are. Um, you know, things, things, since these symptoms started back up again several years ago, Things, I'm in a better place now because I got to the point where I was again coming home, you know, not coming home. I work from home. I'm at home already. But uh, I would come home from whatever I was doing with the kids that day and then it would be like I'd be in bed with my heating pad, you know. So I'm at a place now where I'm, where I'm mostly functional, if exhausted all of the time. <laughs> Still a better place. <laughs> yes. So tell me a little bit. I want to talk about your journey with food. You mentioned early on that you still eat salads, even though you're not supposed to. You just chew very well. But I know, especially in my journey, when I first started, it was kind of like I just stopped eating a lot of things. And, and over the years, I had to figure out what to eat, how to eat. So talk to me a little bit about your journey with food. Are there things that have been beneficial that you found that have helped you throughout this process? And then you mentioned with your family that you're being very careful about what you're putting in and on your bodies, even for your whole family. So talk to me a little bit about that, your your journey, your story with, with food, and how that plays into your overall health and well-being. Sure. When I was a girl, we had enough property that we had a, a, what you might call a kitchen garden, although it was pretty, eh, a little sophisticated um, beyond that, but a kitchen garden. And I do remember being sent out to pick the, I think it was the cherry tomatoes. So being sent out as a girl, I don't know how old I was, with a bowl, go pick the cherry tomatoes for dinner. Um, not a lot of them made it back in the house. <laughs> Um, a lot of them went in my mouth, you know. Um, I have to say, those were my favorite as a kid and to this day. Tomatoes, I love tomatoes, cherry tomatoes especially. Just pop those like, <laughs> like grapes. 100%, 100% all of the time. And so that, I think, is a story that sort of sums up 
what, you know, how it was when I was a kid and how um, I ate then as well. When I got very sick, I went to that place that a lot of people go to, which was not great and something that nobody should do, but that was eating almost nothing. And nothing included like jello and like white bread, you know, like that would be what I would eat. Uh, and not great. Nobody ever told me to do that. At that time, they told you to eat a soft, low residue diet, which would be restricting your fiber, but also eating foods that are easier to digest. Um, I'm not a dietitian. They would probably tell you, you know, small part particle size, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so I, I was given a handout. I was given a sheet, which I carried around for like 10 years. So that <laughs> just goes to show you, you know, um, now we know that that's not the way to go, but that's what, you know, we thought then. Um, after I had my J-pouch surgery, it was... It was like the most glorious door being opened up to the most amazing, wondrous new place because I was trying everything and eating everything. And I was 26. I was an adult. We were, you know, we were dual income, no kids. So it was like just, you know, what ha what have I never eaten? What have I not had all of these years? Uh, and so that was, that was glorious. And then when I had my kids, uh, I'm a food allergy mom. So one of my kids has some food allergies and, you know, first of all, you start thinking to yourself, well, like, why did this happen? I did everything they told me to while I was pregnant, you know, all of that. You're like, why is this going on? Once we figured it out, it took a while to figure it out, figure out what the allergies were. And once we figured it out, then I had to make a lot of decisions about how to feed this kid that's different than most American moms feed their kid because I can't give them the foods. So I began to learn a lot more about, you know, nutrition and um, again, still not a dietitian, but even so, uh, I think I began to learn enough to sort of see the food industry more for what it was in that it's trying to sell us things that aren't necessarily the best things for our bodies. And that, I mean, who doesn't know that, but you know, even so that that's something that, you know, was always at the basis of, of, how I fed my kids and being a good example for them because who, who did they who did they see eat? They saw me eat, right? Because they were they were with me. I've been freelancing since my son was one. And showing them that mom likes to eat vegetables. You know, mom is not so big on fruit, although I will eat it, but mom is big on vegetables to the point where one year they give the kids at school sometimes these little questionnaires for Mother's Day or whatever that they, you know, tell me a little bit about your parents. Ooh, that's a little anxiety because you never know. Kids are honest. But I remember one year one of my kids wrote down that my favorite food was salad. And I thought that was amazing. I'm like, so not the truth. But that was what they thought. So I felt like maybe I was doing a good job in showing them how important it is to eat properly. And then knowing that IBD is hiding there somewhere in their genetic makeup, uh, chances are low, but still want to make sure that they're eating in a way that promotes better health. So that's pretty much how we live now. I do enjoy a cocktail. Stephanie, I know you enjoy your wine. I sure do. So it's... <laughs> We're we're in a no judgment zone. <laughs> exactly. I think uh, I think we have to for each each individual. I think we have to find that 
balance of we know what's healthy, we know what's not healthy, we know that chip and cookie aisle is not filled with nutrients, but <laughs> but there's also that balance of I want to do what I can to put healthy food into my body, but I also want to live life and I want to enjoy certain things and have a cocktail or a glass of wine or whatever that may be. <laughs> and I just need to find that balance where I don't fall off the rails, but I can enjoy 100%. life because life is short. <laughs> yes. And I go more by that 80-20, you know, rule mm-hmm. that it's like, yes. So, you know, today I had oatmeal for breakfast and I'll have a salad for lunch and then, you know, we'll have a sensible dinner. But then on a Friday or a Saturday night, uh, am I going to have a piece of pizza and a glass of wine? Absolutely. You know, because you do have to live your life. I mean, we're going to die anyway. So it's kind of like, I'm not going to like, you know, go to my deathbed be like, I wish I'd had that tiramisu. (laughs) I agree. (laughs) (laughs) So tell me, I want to, I was reading your, some of your blogs. And at one point you said that your disease never should have gotten as far as it did due to a lack of understanding about the treatments and the options available to you. So Talk to me a little bit about the importance of seeking care early on, for especially for people who are listening and scared about the path ahead. So talk about how important it is to get care and the right care right away. Yeah, it's so important. And it's important also to not get into that fatalistic state of mind that I was in that I still don't know where it came from, but that I could only expect so much improvement. And that it wasn't going to go further than that. I should have expected, I should have demanded more, but I didn't know what I didn't know. So today we have better treatments. We have a lot more understanding. There's better testing, et cetera. But you still, as the patient, have to be the one, or as a caregiver, as a parent or a caregiver, You have to be the one to make sure that all of this is happening, and you have to be the one to advocate for yourself or your loved one to make sure that you're getting what you need. And I've heard lots of stories about how people advocate for themselves and the ways in which they make changes. But like one that I heard was, for instance, someone who needed to have their medication delivered to them. And... That was a problem because they didn't live in a place where it was easy to get a delivery of a what might be a $10,000 syringe of medication. <laughs> um, and they didn't, they also didn't want it delivered to work. So once they let their healthcare provider understand that, that something else could be worked out. There's always a workaround. There's always a way that you can make the situation work for your life but you have to explain what that is to your healthcare providers and help them help you get to where it is that you want to be. Now, I was also very sick in the years before the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, which meant that it was difficult or impossible to get insurance and that I could be fired from health insurance for having a condition, or I could be refused health insurance for having a pre-existing condition. Now, I'm not saying that the ACA is a perfect law. It is not, but it at least helps in certain respects. So it meant that I could start to receive regular care and not have it be a problem where I was going to be refused insurance or refused employment even because that was another worry when I especially when I was a young adult in that if I began being public and writing and being an advocate for myself and for other people with IBD a very simple internet search could bring that up from an employer and then Another search to learn what IBD is, IBD is a very expensive disease to have, they might not want me working for them and being, dragging down their insurance plan. 
So these are all considerations that you have to take in mind. Um, today I, I have insurance because it's through my husband's employer. But again, kind of ridiculous that my insurance status is predicated upon my relationship status. It's kind of dumb. Uh, but I know that it's there and that the insurance company can't refuse to pay for things. I mean, they find lots of ways to not pay for things all of the time, but they can't say because you have a pre-existing condition anymore. So I would hope, and I know people still get very bad disease today for lots of reasons. The diagnostic process is better, but I still have people on my show all of the time who it took, you know, weeks, months, years, I've heard of decades before that they were properly diagnosed. So we need to improve that process because the longer you go with the inflammation, the worse everything is going to be and the more bad outcomes you have. So the people who get diagnosed pretty rapidly, and I had someone on my show recently who was diagnosed fairly rapidly and I think the immediate idea for them was to say, I know it's not that way for a lot of people. So many people, it takes so long. And I said, no, that is how it's supposed to happen. And I am so glad to hear that it worked that way in your situation because it shouldn't take so long to get diagnosed. So there's still so much more work to do in that space because People should not be coming into the emergency room. And I know another person that was diagnosed in the emergency room. Like, that shouldn't be. That shouldn't be. So we really, like I said, we do have so much more work to do. It is getting better. But for myself, again, I didn't know what I didn't know which is one of the reasons why I work so hard to put information out so that if anyone sees themselves in these symptoms of IBD, that they know what to do next. Most people probably don't, before you, before you get to be 45 and need that, <laughs> that screening colonoscopy for colon cancer, maybe you don't even know what a gastroenterologist is. You know, why would you? So I'm hoping that we can get to the place where people are diagnosed more, well, Let's say, I'm hoping to get to the place where people aren't diagnosed with it anymore. Let's get to prevention. But while we're here, let's get people diagnosed and treated better and make sure that they have access to care, but that access is not receiving care, that also that they are able to receive the care and that there's not all of these barriers in the way. Because I blame myself partially. I'm going to put it 50-50. I've never really thought about it before, but I'm going to put it 50-50. That 50% of it was my fault for not taking care of myself, and 50% of it was the fault of the system for not allowing me access um, to care. Well, and it's hard in hindsight, too. As, as you said, we don't know what we don't know. And when you're going through the motions and you don't know and the system isn't helping you to know, it's very hard to know what you're fighting for or what you need or how to advocate. So it's a it's a tough situation. But I think I think we all know when something is wrong with our body, especially when there's obvious symptoms like blood with bowel movements. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. seek that care and don't stop until you're satisfied with the care you're getting. We right. took a we took a heavy turn from cocktails and wine to I what? know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure we'll be laughing again in a minute. It's not, I don't think it's in either of our personalities to be that heavy for that long. For so. that long, exactly. <laughs> so let's shift gears a little bit. And you've mentioned that you're putting out information to help spread information about IBD, about health, and, and what's happening with our bodies. So take me through your journey. You've come a long way from being the young girl who didn't know anything about IBD and now you're a trusted expert writing for various health publications. How did that path take shape for you? And did it stem from wanting to learn more about your own health? Yes. It, it, yes, that's how it started. Because in the way back when, when I learned that I was going to need to have surgery, I then started looking for community and for support. 
And that's when I learned, like, there was this, <laughs> there was this whole community out there that I had no idea and learned so much from the people that I met in those days, some of whom I still um, am in contact with when we were on those <laughs> Those message boards seems kind of funny. Like Facebook is almost exactly like what those message boards were like, you know, um, back then. But yeah, so it did come from that. And so my background actually um, have Bachelor of Science in environmental science. And so that's where I expected to be pointing my career. But it didn't really work out that way for a variety of reasons, um, one of which being the stupid ulcerative colitis. But um, so I found out that an online website um, was looking for a writer to write about IBD. And they had approached someone that I knew to write, and that person was not interested in doing it. And so when I saw that they were looking for someone, I said, well, I can string a sentence together. Let me see. And they tapped me for the role as a consulting you know, position. And so that started the journey of doing that. Uh, so online writing different informational pace, patient facing articles about IBD and a little bit of blogging, a little bit of, uh, personal, uh, story type stuff. And then, you know, and promoting events and things like that, that would go on for the community. And I, I don't know if I'm the only person in the history of ever anymore. But at the time, I may have been the only person in the history of ever that got another job because I had IBD. Because there was uh, a person that saw my writings and they were looking for someone who could do the writing, but also knew the online space. And that was when I got hired in at a full-time position um, working for a company that uh, published medical journals. So that was where I got into medical writing, learned a lot from my mentors there. Um, all the time still doing the side gig, the online side gig. And then when I had my kids, I decided going to work and being a mother of a baby was not for me. So <laughs> I, uh, uh, left a full-time position, but thankfully I had made enough connections during my time there that the folks who also left their positions there and went on to other things, um, then began to hire me to write the stuff that they needed. So, um, I didn't start out freelancing. It, it, you know, I, I had to build, um, to get there. And now that's, you know, I make my living as a writer. And uh, now, of course, because I've been working in the IBD space so long, I'm approached, you know, I, I've, you know, asked to, to write things, but I also get approached a lot uh, to write things or to do other work, um, especially in, in the digestive disease space. So I'm, I'm never not busy. Let me put it that way. <laughs> Which is a nice place to be. <laughs> it is. And I always say For to the myself, most part. <laughs> yeah, you know, like, oh, gosh, maybe I'll one day I'll do this or one day I'll do that. And then I'm always like, well, what? One day, you know, the, the people will stop emailing me and asking me to, you know, work on whatever project. And it just and it hasn't happened yet. So <laughs> yet. <laughs> yeah. now do you do you write just about IBD or do you write about a variety of, of health topics? A variety. So if you go and do a search for my stuff, you'll find mainly IBD because that's a lot of the public information that's out there and the patient facing. But I do a lot of work that is for clinicians and doesn't have a byline. So you would not know that I wrote it. You might interact with a website and I wrote the whole thing and you wouldn't know it. And um, that's that's how, like, I don't care. But, <laughs> um, you know, as long as um, 
as long as the uh, check cleared. I don't care. So, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's. I mean, I when I when I get approached for things, it's usually because someone is looking for a person that understands IBD in the way that I do, also being a patient. But the 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 other work that I do could be on it could be on anything. Um, it could be in any space, although it's, it's, you know, like I said, digestive disease comes around, uh, over and over again. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with having a, a niche <laughs> or a niche. No, it's, it's, it's very nice, actually. It's yeah. very, I never thought I'd be here, but. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good place. Yeah. You're, you're providing incredibly valuable information. So it's, it's, it's great to have you in that space and to sharing that information because we Thank need you. it. We need more of it out there. Thank you. So as someone who might be listening, and you've been in this space for probably about 20 years, I think it is now, writing yes. and, and sharing information about IBD, what are some of the top resources that you would recommend to people listening for where to go? Oh, gosh. That's a difficult question, isn't it? <laughs> I know, because my fir my first place to go is PubMed, but I know that's not for everybody. Not everybody wants to wade through all of that stuff to uh, find what they're looking for. But I do often give talks or uh, write about how you can find good sources of information. And let me see if I can remember all of them. All right. Let's go. All right. One of the first things is, is that quiz. if you, right? Um, <laughs> government sites, educational sites, and patient advocacy group sites. Okay. So .gov.org.edu is usually a good place to start and to find information. Okay. Um, the second thing that I would look for in information is who wrote it. And I just told you that I write all kinds of stuff without a byline. Um, but when you read something, there there should be an identifiable entity, at least, even if it says staff writer. It shouldn't just be a bunch of very clinical advice sounding type stuff on a page and you don't know who wrote it. Um, you should know who wrote it and how to get in contact with them. Right, that's two. Three would be looking at what the site that you are interacting with, or the app, I guess I should say, um, what they're getting out of it. Are they selling you something? And I'm not saying that someone who has something for sale is always off the table. I mean, if you sign up for my newsletter, I have discount codes in there too um, that you can go and purchase some of the things that I have vetted and, and that I use in my own life. So I'm not saying that, you know, um, somebody has to pay the light bill. Okay. But I will say it should be clear and you should have a clear understanding of if that person is selling something and then what they are selling. All right. Number four. I don't know if I'm going to get to five. This may, four, or four might be it. I might not be able to remember that fifth one. I, I didn't um, even know there were going to be five. So I know. All right. It's all, it's all good. Well, you have to do five. If you're making a list, it's got, I can't go to 10. It's got to be five. So um, the fourth thing is, is that you want to see that the information that you are looking at, receiving, interacting with, is goes back to some primary sources. So that's where it gets back to that PubMed thing. You know, um, when I, I can't even help myself. I can't even write a blog post. It was like a blog post should be like, this is my personal experience, right? Even most of my blog posts have citations on them because I cannot help myself. Um, I'm so used to an editor or a fact checker holding my feet to the fire and saying, well, where did you get that information? So look for citations. Um, where did they get this information? Did they get it from a source that is, for instance, someone interviewed a clinician, which is something that, you know, you and I do. You interview someone like that, they're a source. You, um, they link back to a clinical trial. Okay. They're talking about a medication. So they link to maybe a trial on that medication. You know, that's great. 
or they link back to, for instance, a patient advocacy group or an educational resource like an IBD center, which there are several across the country. Um, that's good to know. Whenever I see something that says like 10% of people XYZ, I want to know where that 10% came from. Where'd that come from? That's got, there's got to be something behind that for me. So that's another thing that I usually say that people should look for when they're looking for good sources of information. Um, and I know there's a fifth and it is escaping me <laughs> as to what the fifth, what the fifth thing usually is. Um, but those are the things that I usually tell people to look for when they're vetting sources of information. Um, so let's, okay, let's say number five is your own healthcare team. Ask them for the resources, okay? Because we all want to go online and look for things because it's easy and convenient and works out really well. But there are also sources that are offline, another patient that they might suggest for you to be a sort of a, a mentor for you or um, someone else on the healthcare team, like a dietitian, like a mental health specialist. Those people are great sources of, in, uh, primary sources of information for you. And then they can also tell you what it is that they think would be helpful for you in other information that you can consume on your own. Yay, I made it to five. I'm excited. <laughs> Perfect. I love that. And that is just incredible advice. Thank you for sharing those great tips. So now I want to talk about your podcast about IBD. So you started that in 2017. Tell me about what was the passion behind that, behind starting it? And then can you talk a little bit more about it, the topics you cover, what you share on the show? Sure. I started about IBD because I got so mad. <laughs> I got so mad <laughs> because... There was this study that came out, and a lot of this is on my blog, so I'm not going to dig into it too much, but a study came out, and it all studies are great. We want to see research, but it wasn't anything that was going to be actionable for people with IBD, okay? And yet, everybody was sending it to me. I think this research group had the best PR firm in the history of medical publishing, People who don't even normally speak to me about what I do for a living were sending this article to me. And then my editors approached me and wanted me to write something. And that's when I lost my mind. So <laughs> I decided that it wasn't enough to be writing about this on my own blog. I really wanted to yell into a microphone about it. And so I did. And then I yelled into the microphone a few more times about a few other things. And then I started asking all of my IBD buddies to share their voices and their opinions. And then people started reaching out to me and saying, can I come on the show? And it was so wild. It just took on this life that I never expected. And now... Um, Stephanie can see me. You can't because this is a podcast. But Stephanie can see that I've got the, you know, the professional microphone and the pop filter. And what you don't see is the compressor that that's plugged into. And, you know, so now, so now I'm there. That's that's where I am now. And my show, I interview, I started out interviewing patients. That was always my vision, but there have been so many amazing IBDologists and other clinicians who have asked to come on the show or who I've asked them and just it's bonkers to me that people say yes, <laughs> um, but we'll come on the show. And so we've talked about like, not everything. There's still, there's always more, but mental health, nutrition, sexual health, being a caregiver, being a parent, um, being a parent of a kid with IBD, running a nonprofit in the IBD space or other spaces, being a teenager with IBD, being a college student with IBD, people who are living in, not in the United States, living in other countries and how their system copes with IBD and how th they're dealing with it all. So really, there's almost no topic that's 
off the table. And I have been so just humbled at the amount of people that literally just say yes to me and spend an hour with me to record my show. And whenever it gets hard, it's kind of a funny thing. Um, it probably happens to you too, Stephanie, where things get hard and I wonder what it is that I'm doing with my life and who I am. And somebody will send me a message and say, I listened to the show with so-and-so and wow, it gave me what I needed, stories similar to my own, or it gave me the advice I needed, or it gave me the kick in the pants to go and do whatever. So that truly is what keeps me going. That and the fact that I just, I, like, I don't know where, I don't know where audio was all my life, you know? Because when I discovered it and got into it, um, and I've now, I have my show about IBD, I've produced uh, a couple other shows where I hosted, um, and yeah, and so I, like, I think I've done like four or five now, and I have more like in the, in the works um, for various places, so, so Clearly, it's it's an enjoyable it's an enjoyable thing to me. So I'm not willing to I'm not going anywhere or letting go of it anytime soon. That's for sure. That's good to hear. You have some incredible episodes and some really respected doctors, physicians. You have some great sources on that share. You do have the patient stories, but there's so much more than that too. So it's a wealth of information, and I highly recommend it. And I think you're getting close to 200 episodes, if I'm not mistaken. I've got Almost. 145. <laughs> yeah, 145 is in process right now. Um, so, yeah. I mean, I wish it was something that I could do more, you know, like everything else. It's, it's, it's self-limiting simply because of the amount of time that I need to spend working on the show to produce a quality uh, product and every other podcaster I ever speak to is always like, oh yeah, <laughs> you know, like we really, we get into the weeds and, um, you know, I'm lucky I have support and I have help and I have a lot of privilege so I can, I can do it. Um, but I wish I could put out more episodes. Um, it's just, gosh, finding those sources of funding is really like, like what, for everybody, not just for me, but like for everybody um, to do this this kind of work. But but thankfully, um, I ha I have my ways. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for what you're doing, and keep doing what you're doing. So, I want to ask: as you went through and continue to go through this journey, what compelled you to actually begin sharing your story way back when, when you first started your blog, and and to really become an advocate? Yeah, I never really thought about having a blog until I started to work. Um, well, you know, years ago, patients were really kept out of the space. You couldn't go to a medical meeting. You know, there's you would not be allowed. Um, even journalists were not always allowed into medical meetings. Maybe if you were an editor at one of the top publications, but being online, that wasn't seen as something that, you know, to be granted a press pass to go to a medical meeting, which that's changed today. Um, thankfully, um, they let us come in and hang out. Um, they're now, uh, as, as journalists or podcasters or um, writing uh, online in the space. So it was really challenging to do this type of work in those days. And then I never wanted to make anything about myself. Um, even my show, when I cut, I usually cut myself <laughs> because it's not about me. It's about the other person. And so starting a blog seemed a little odd and I didn't really want to do it, but I also felt as though if I didn't have something like that out there, how is anybody going to find you? How is anybody going to find the, the information? And how is anybody going to connect with you? And I wanted to make sure that I was also a resource for people who have questions and 
couldn't find anyone else to answer them for, you know, whatever reason. And so that's really why I started the blog. It kind of wasn't. And then it just became kind of the writing that I was doing sort of for myself that I didn't think I could publish somewhere, that it was just thoughts swirling about the intersection of IBD and your personal life or I love to connect like things that I see in movies and TV and how that connects to IBD. A couple things like directly connect, but some of it is a little more tangential. And I just needed a place to put that because writing is a little bit of a compulsion. Um, So that's really why I started the blog. And then that did help all of those things happen. So then it became a place where, um, you know, somebody approaches you and says, hey, I have um, a research study and I'm looking for other people with IBD to be in it, you know, or I'm, I'm doing a survey. And can you... So then it's a place for all of those things as well that I can make those connections. And another reason is because one of the reasons why I love my show and I love my blog is because it's mine. <laughs> you can do what you want, whenever you want. <laughs> and... There's no entity, there's no person, for instance, at a social media company who can decide that you have violated some arbitrary rule and remove everything. It is, it is free for everyone to access. There's no paywall. There's, you don't have to even give an email address, nothing, if you don't want to. I mean, please do sign up for my <laughs> newsletter, but um, but you don't have to. It's all there available for you, you know, and you could never let me know that you're out there, you know. Um, so those are the kind of things that are important to me. Um, and that's what always brings me back to my core mission is to provide quality evidence-based information to people living with IBD. I love that. It's absolutely wonderful. So as we get ready to wrap up, what is the final message or piece of advice that you would like to share with listeners? Oh, I never know how to answer this question, Stephanie. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe top two. (laughs) I know it's so hard because it's like, how do you, again, how do you sum up? Um, I guess what I would say, though, is to just never stop learning. You do whatever's happening, you do not have to accept that any one thing is the final word. Always go out and find more information and keep learning because that will help you to achieve your goals no matter what they are and to live the best possible life that you can while you're dealing with these stupid diseases. I love that message. And the disease is stupid. <laughs> it is so stupid. You know? <laughs> like, who thought of this disease? No. <laughs> I don't know. I, I have some words for them. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> so if people want to keep up with your IBD journey or read some of what you've written or hear your podcast or read your blog, tell me all of the places they can find and follow you online. Yeah, I am in all of the places as about IBD. So that quick search will bring me up. And I am in every podcasting platform that I know of. Let's put it that way. If you go in there and search for about IBD, I will come up. And if that's not your jam, aboutibd.com contains all of my episodes along with transcripts or most of them. If you go to some of the older ones, I don't have all those transcripts up. And uh, yeah, that's um, most of the main places that you can find. But I'm always around. I'm, I'm always around. I'm around every corner. <laughs> <laughs> you are. I'll put those <laughs> links in the show notes so that people can find you around every corner and around every easily corner. right there. <laughs> yeah. Can't escape me. Can't. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for sharing your journey with us today and helping to raise IBD awareness and just for everything that you are doing in this space. It's been a pleasure to talk to you, and I really appreciate you coming on the show. 
Stephanie, thank you so much for asking me. Like I said, it's totally my fault. We should have done this long, long ago. I'm glad we're finally getting here now. And thank you for your voice. And thank you for all of the work that you are doing in this space. I know how hard it is in a way that maybe other people don't. <laughs> so um, I really do appreciate everything that you're doing and the voices that you are bringing to your show for everyone to hear. So thank you for everything that you're doing. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. If you love these interviews and want to support the podcast, visit my website at Crohn'sFitnessFood.com where you can browse my featured products page to shop the companies I love and support. Make a donation using the Buy Me a Coffee link to send a little love or grab a copy of my book and IBD story, Crohn's Fitness Food and My Rocky Road to Health. If you have an IBD story that you want to share, send me an email at story at Crohn'sFitnessFood.com. And always remember, be strong, be grateful, and keep going.